you will join me in Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 20. The title of our sermon this morning is The Lord of the Harvest. Our key words for our worshipers in training are laborer, harvest, and mission. Now, as we saw last week in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord Jesus Christ is now very intently focused on his progress toward Jerusalem, that he would meet the inevitable reality that awaited him, that is, his death upon the cross, and as Luke pointed out to us, his resurrection from the dead on behalf of sinners like you and I. Now, if you recall, we said that from here on, what we see is mainly twofold in the life and ministry of Jesus. First, he's preparing himself for what is to come. But he's also training and preparing the disciples. These people were following Jesus constantly, learning from him and seeing his great works. They would be the first members of the New Covenant Christian Church. And were therefore in need of direction and training by Jesus prior to the very difficult things that lay ahead in the days to come. And our first indication of that, of what, what that looks like, is in the text we are in this morning. So we have a lot to cover, so let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now some manuscripts say that Jesus sent out 70 disciples. Our text says 72. Either way, whether it was 70 or 72, what we see is there, are, there is some great intentionality here by Jesus in preparing the way for all of these places that he was about to go on his way to Jerusalem. He sent them out two by two into every place. And the disciples began preparing the way for the king. They were the advance party. They were going ahead for the master, for the Lord, for the Messiah, for the, the savior of men. They were laying the groundwork. You know, when I was in high school, the president of the United States came to visit us. And it was quite a task to be prepared. The president doesn't just show up one day and everyone gets to see him and shake his hand. It takes weeks upon weeks for that preparation. People will come and they'll set up all of, all the, the various things they need to set up for, for him to be there and they do background checks of all sorts of people and they have security guards on the roofs and all sorts of things have to go into preparation for that. Everyone knows someone important is coming. The foundation must be laid for him to come. 
And we see this great thing that the disciples are doing as Jesus sends them out. Literally, Luke writes here that the Lord appointed these disciples and sent them out before his face. And that's significant. Remember, remember last week we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And now they go before his face to do that which was begun when? Well, this is the very thing that John the Baptist did, right? This was the ministry of John the Baptist to go out ahead of the Messiah to announce his coming. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Repent and be baptized. These were the words of John the Baptist over and over again. And we see then the beginning of Luke 9, we saw Jesus do the same thing with the 12 apostles to send them out to heal and to proclaim the good news. And now we see this with the 72. We see the growth and the expansion of the mission of the gospel from 1 to 12 and now to 72. And eventually we will see at Pentecost and thereon all the disciples of Jesus Christ, that we all share in this great work of preparing the way and of bringing the gospel to bear on the hearts of men. Now, what's most likely going on here with these disciples is a reflection of what is called the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, a laying out of all the various nations, all the people groups of the known world. And so Luke is giving us another glimpse of what we saw very clearly last week when Jesus sent the disciples into the Samaritan village, namely that the gospel is for all the nations. These places, the, all of these places that the disciples went were not, were mostly not Jewish communities, but Gentile. So these disciples were in a very real sense what we call pioneer or frontier missionaries. In other words, they were bringing the gospel where the gospel had not yet been. And this is very clearly the precursor to the great commission that was later to come bringing the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And so this was the work that Jesus sends his 72 disciples to do. Now, let's pick up in verse 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So as the disciples were going along, they were headed into territory that was very much unlike their own. While the world all around them and where they live communed something of religious morality, religious adherence, there was no question about the spiritual condition of the Gentiles. Now, it's undoubtable that the Jewish culture was by and large only a mirage of true godliness. Only an image of true holiness is full of religious expressions, but it was never truly the result of transformed hearts. It was nevertheless on the surface a very clean looking community, but not so in the Gentile lands. You got the truth. It was live in full color, nothing hidden, surround sound. And if you've ever traveled much outside of the southern states, You've gotten something of a taste of this very thing. Go spend some time in New York City. Go to Seattle, Washington. Go anywhere in Europe. 
We have a very clear indication that Christian morality is not registering very high on the table of virtues. Now, I don't believe it's registering very high on the table of virtues in our communities either, but there's a certain image. There's a certain display. There are certain cultural norms that portray righteousness, but as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, there may be a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's where we live, isn't it? That's what we're surrounded by. That's the very reason why most missionaries will tell you it is far easier to go to Gotham City than it is to go to Mayberry. They're all just as lost and sinful as one another, but only one city actually knows it. So for the disciples, there would be no question that they were stepping into the lands of the ungodly. And as they went, Jesus told them, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There would be no question. These people need the gospel of Christ. Pray, pray and ask God to send his laborers into the world that they would bring the gospel to the lost and dying and sinful ungodly people. Brothers and sisters, I hear a lot of talk among Christians about the ungodliness of the world. But are we praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers? Lord, raise them up. Send them out. Lord, might it be me? I dare you to pray that. Oh, Lord, if it be your will, send me. Verse 3, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Can you imagine how that landed on the 72? Uh, thank you. <laughs> I'm so thankful that Jesus is so honest with his disciples. There's no question as to what they will face, is there? There's no question as to what we will face, is there? Be there no mistake, the gospel is a message that will always find opposition. And not just the good news of the gospel, but all the truth of God's word that undergirds the good news of the gospel. Among the most hated things in all the world is the law of God. The absolute reality that truth is immutable because God is immutable and that there is an objective, unchanging rule of life that is required of all men everywhere, whether they believe that or not. And we need not look far for proof of that, do we? Have you considered what's at the heart, the question, the fundamental issue that is at the heart of most political and social issues of our day? At the heart of all of them is this question. Did God really say? Yes, he did. Now, it's not being asked that way, but that really is the issue, isn't it? And no amount of political bantering or legislation is going to change it. 
But the heart of natural man is to rebel, to turn from God's holy word and to go his own way, suiting his own sinful desires that he can live in a feverish city of lust and lavishness. So when you make the bold and true assertions of Scripture, you will feel the pressure. You will feel the heat. You will know that you are being regarded as a lamb among wolves. Jesus is the only way. All other religious pursuits in the world are a lie and lead to eternal judgment in hell and marriages between one man and one woman. Abortion is murder. You must repent and believe the gospel. Those are not very popular sorts of statements. They don't garner a tremendous amount of affection from the world, nor will they ever. Because... We are lambs among wolves. And that's not to say that we speak the truth with disdain or anger in our hearts, but we do so with love and compassion, knowing in the end that no matter how loving and how compassionate we are, we will be hated and the world will seek to devour us. Jesus has said so himself. Let's carry on. Verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So the Lord has three things in mind for the disciples as they're being trained in this sort of short-term mission trip that they're on. Three things, contentment, urgency, And peace first, as we saw when Jesus sent out the 12 at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus wants them to be content with what God has provided. You won't need a bunch of money. You won't need a suitcase. You won't need an extra pair of shoes. It will all be provided for you and you will be content. Lodging and food and drink will be there for you. Take it. You are laborers. You deserve your wages. Secondly, as we considered last week, the disciples needed to have a growing sense of urgency of the mission of Jesus Christ. He, he tells them in verse 4, greet no one on the road. Now that seems harsh, doesn't it? Well, Jesus is not telling the disciples to not say hello to anybody or to go about their day staring at the ground to make sure they don't make eye contact with anybody. What he is saying is that they don't have time for a bunch of meaningless chit-chat. And if you've ever been to the Middle East or some of the African tribal regions, you know that their greetings between the people go on and on and on. And that very much would have been what Jesus was talking about. Literally, sometimes these greetings back and forth can take five or ten minutes. How is your wife? She is well. Praise be to God. How are your children? They are well. Praise be to God. How is your farm? It is well. Praise be to God. And on and on and on. And then the reverse. Now we've summarized that a great deal in our culture, haven't we? Hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Perhaps that's what Jesus had in mind. 
So Jesus is stressing the urgency of the mission. Don't get bogged down with fulfilling all of the cultural niceties that will consume all your time. Get to the mission at hand. Do what I've called you to do. Thirdly, Jesus intended that his disciples would bring peace to the people of each home they entered. The peace of God brought through the proclamation of the gospel. Peace be to this house. It's a very typical greeting, very much the same as the statement many Christians use. Grace and peace. But this peace to be pronounced was not simply a greeting of communicating a sort of feeling or an ease of contentment. It was the proclamation of an objective reality. It was synonymous with messianic salvation and all the blessings that come with knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. That's the meaning of Jesus' statement. Your peace will rest upon him, but if not, it will return to you. In other words, if he has true faith, peace will be with him. If not, then the prayer of peace will be of no effect. So the peace of God was granted to those homes that were open to Christ and to his kingdom. They received the peace of God's presence and his saving work. Wholeness, completeness settles upon that house. So the pair of disciples would sit at the table, enjoying the meal that the family was providing for them, pronouncing the goodness of the kingdom of God, teaching them all about what Jesus has said and done, and explaining the scriptures in light of Jesus. And in all of this, the smile of God was upon them. It's the very work that our missionaries engage in day by day, going house to house, proclaiming the good news of the gospel as they enjoy building a relationship with these people. He goes on in verse 9, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. So as they're welcomed into towns, the disciples were to heal the sick. And part of bringing the peace of God was bringing the power of God. Very much the same way Jesus had already done with the the 12 apostles previously. So with obvious power, they were able to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to you. But we will see here that the disciples would not all be accepted in the same manner on their travels. Some of the 70 would be rejected. Verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day, on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So as Jesus has directed, they act out this parable of rejection before the whole town. Removing the dust from their feet. 
If you remember from chapter 9, this is an action telling the town that they were placing themselves outside of the people of God. It's a tragic display because their rejection was a rejection of nothing less than the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus told the disciples to say, the kingdom of God has come near. And the people were heaping judgment upon themselves, even though the kingdom of God had come. You see, they weren't simply rejecting a few poor preachers who stopped along the way. They were rejecting God's kingdom. The town was foreign soil to God now. And how terribly sad that the disciples were to pronounce prophetic woes to this rejecting town. If the works done here had been done in Tyre and Nineveh, they would have repented. Greater judgment than fell upon them is coming to fall upon you. Woe to you. That's not an expression of vengeance or judgment, but of deep sadness and regret. Woe to you. How sad. How shameful. How sad and shameful that we live among a people who've heard just enough about Jesus to think they know Jesus. Woe to them. It will be far greater for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will for them. And Jesus reminds the disciples and he reminds us that when we speak the words of truth, we're not speaking for ourselves. We're speaking with the very voice of God. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Sobering, sobering words. And then from verses 17 through 20, we see the return of the disciples from their short mission trip. The 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. As the 72 return, they're filled with joy. They're filled with amazement. They are astonished at what they are able to accomplish on their journey. Such power, such authority. Lord, we simply said your name and the demons did what we said. They obeyed us. And don't you love Jesus' response? He hearkens back to his pre-incarnate state, his his eternality as the son of God. And he says, I saw when Satan was cast from heaven. I know the power. I know the authority that you speak of. I gave you that authority. I gave you that power to tread out evil and wickedness. And there is no power. There is no enemy that shall ever hurt you. What a wonderful assurance. Reminds me of that beautiful promise at the end of Romans 8 for the people of God. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
beautiful promise. And it's the same promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. But there is something very important for us to recognize here. Notice that Jesus acknowledges the great reason for them to rejoice in all that he gave them to do, but he also tempers their rejoicing, doesn't he? He moderates it. He tells the disciples, I agree, your works are wonderful. So let's get that in our minds first. Yes, there is a right kind of rejoicing in kingdom work that bears good fruit. A rejoicing that says, by the grace of God, look what we were able to accomplish for the sake of the kingdom. Praise God. When we're able to engage in mission efforts, when we're able to plant new churches, when we're able to see people come to faith in Christ as a result of our ministries, and on and on. These are wonderful, beautiful, praiseworthy things that we can thank God for. But what is most significant? Jesus tells his disciples in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' counsel falls right in line with all that he's been teaching the disciples already. Yes, I'm giving you great power. I'm giving you the ability to do great and mighty things in my name, but remember first and foremost when it come, where it comes from and what it is for. Jesus is constantly tempering the prideful tendencies of the disciples. And for good reason, right? It's very important for all of us to remember the order of priority. We can have great joy in all the gifts of God in our lives, our spiritual gifts, all of our successes, but they must be in proper perspective. Virtually any person who is blessed with any kind of spiritual gift and has some level of success and particularly those of a public nature, can begin to think it is because of some innate ability or superiority. Remember, a few weeks ago we said, it is a complete contradiction of terms to say that one could be a prideful Christian. And yet how easy it is to forget what we are. Because our names are written in heaven not because of some personal worth or ability. So do not rejoice in your power and success. Rejoice in your salvation. Another reason we must resist placing all of our joy in our spiritual prowess, in our giftedness, is that we do not indicate any kind of spiritual superiority. Some inarticulate people's prayers have been a thousand times more useful to the church than my preaching. Some who are illiterate reflect the heart of Christ more closely and more powerfully than many seminary graduates. And furthermore, joy and spiritual accomplishment must be moderated because it is not intrinsically abiding. If we place all of our joy in the fact that the spirits submit to us, what will happen when they do not? What if Jesus sends us where there is no response to our giftedness whatsoever? What will happen when our successes in ministry are far and few between? 
For all these reasons, we must not base our joy on the devils that have been conquered, the crowds that have been gathered, or the souls that have been saved because of our works. Rather, we derive our joy from the Lord's approval and the Lord's directives because He is the Lord of the harvest, not us. Now, with that instruction, let's consider some points of application in our own lives as a local church of Jesus Christ. As the church, let us consider the call on us collectively to the task of global mission. Specifically, as it relates to this text, to bringing the gospel to the frontier lands where the people have not yet heard of Jesus Christ and his great work on behalf of the church. In the history of missions, you can look and see sowing and reaping going on. But in the vast majority of cases, those who sow are not the same who reap. Some fields are completely about sowing building relationships, engaging in the culture, developing partnerships, providing humanitarian aid, taking opportunities to proclaim the gospel whenever available, knowing that it may result in rejection and even death. Places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Japan and Thailand, these are all sowing fields today. A few seeds springing up here and there, not a great season of harvest yet. There are other fields that are ripe and the harvest is plentiful. China, Siberia, Kazakhstan. It's incredible what God is doing in these places. The great book, it's called The Power to Save, A History of the Gospel in China. And it details the gospel seeds that are sown. They've been sown for hundreds of years in China before all the missionaries were kicked out in the 1940s. At that time, in the 1940s, there were estimated to be around a million Christians in China. Now, if you know anything about the size of China, a million people is about what we have in here today. (laughs) Not a ton. (laughs) Today in China, there's estimated to be over 75 million evangelical Christians mostly meeting in secret because of persecution from the government. And still... That's only about 8% of the Chinese population. But in China, the sowers were not the reapers of this great harvest. The early missionaries to China had very, very difficult work and they struggled all along and saw very little fruit early on. But look at them now. The church is growing faster and wider than all of the church in the Western Hemisphere combined. It's remarkable. Some sowed faithfully, never seeing a great harvest. But the time has come, and thank God for the faithfulness of those who gave themselves to the task of winning the Chinese people to Christ. In fact, it's safe to say that the geographical center of Christianity is shifting. There will soon be a day when it is no longer in the Western Hemisphere. By God's grace, and as a result of his sovereign work, it will be in the east. It's already moving that direction very quickly. And as the gospel flourishes in the east and the west is increasingly secularized, we will see the shift take place in its entirety, I think, within the next 50 to 100 years. That's just me. That's my guess. But sheer numbers seem to indicate that. 
Nevertheless, we still have a task to do, don't we? We see the task right here in our text this morning. It's twofold. Going and sending. The going is very evident in the 72 disciples who were into the various towns and villages bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And maybe you're a goer. In the task of global frontier missions, there are some. But don't miss what Jesus says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray that God would raise up men and women who are willing to give their lives to the labors of the harvest. Are you doing this? Are you praying to God to send his people to the uttermost parts of the world to reach those who have never heard the gospel? Are you praying that? God, do you want me to go? Do you want my family to go? Is it me? If not, Lord, won't you raise up those who will go, who can go, who you want to go? Can you show me how I can take part in this happening? How can I be a part of that? What else can I do? That's an important question, isn't it? In many ways, praying that God would raise up and send out laborers into the harvest field without having an active role in giving toward mission work is similar to seeing a brother in physical need for which we are able to provide and simply saying, I'll pray for you and walking away. Most of us don't mind praying for missions. We love to hear great stories of all that's being accomplished on the mission field by the grace of God. But at what level beyond that are we actively involved in the great missionary task of global evangelization? Yes, we need to pray for laborers, but we also need to support those laborers that God would use them in mighty and powerful ways for his glory. And God means this work to be a joyful work. But it's not an easy work and it is not a safe work. Christians, all Christians, and especially those doing frontier missions are as lambs among wolves. And of course, with long seasons of sowing, there's also battle with discouragement to keep on believing that the investment of a life in sowing is worth the sacrifices and with high seasons of harvesting. There is immense battles with opposition, family strife, sickness, political resistance, persecution. All of that to both sowers and reapers. And so whether our missionaries are sowing or reaping, the battles are immense. So this only goes to highlight the absolute importance of not rejoicing in gifts of successes, but rather rejoicing that our names are written in heaven. When all else gives way, and when we assume what we're, go- what we're doing is great and wonderful for God's kingdom, and yet it still meets great opposition and lacks results, if we're rightly oriented in our thinking and rejoicing, we can persevere in the task. Now, I don't doubt that there are some of you in here this morning who are hearing all of this and thinking, big deal, There are people all around the world who have heard the name of Jesus who don't believe he is the Savior of the world and that they should obey him and follow him. In fact, I'm one of those people. Maybe you're saying that. And you're absolutely right. 
So we need to clarify because simply saying the name of Jesus or saying Jesus saves is not what anyone has in mind, I hope. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul is explaining the absolute power of the message of the gospel to transform lives. But he takes a bit of a rabbit trail to explain the absolute necessity for sending out laborers that the gospel might be rightly proclaimed. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So what are we praying for exactly? There are a lot of people going out and doing what they call missions. But if you've spent any time on the mission field, you quickly realize there's a huge conglomeration of ideas spread around the world. And the false gospels seem to be making headway far and wide. So here it is. Jesus is commanding his disciples, all of us who are Christians, to pray that God would send laborers into the harvest fields to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting local churches, that the deposit of sound truth given to us through the apostles might be handed off to new people groups, that they too can baptize new believers in Christ teaching them all that the Lord Jesus has commanded us. And here's what that sounds like. And if you're not a Christian, I am talking to you right now. So I would just love a few final moments of your time and then we'll be off. Remember, Jesus sent out the disciples and tells them to say, the kingdom of God has come near to you in verse 9. In a nutshell... This is a very condensed summary way of proclaiming the good news of the gospel. But what does it mean? The kingdom of God is, in one sense, Christ's rule in the hearts of mankind. So this includes the proclamation of the law of God and a call to repentance for lawlessness, that the remedy for sin in Christ might be appropriated in the life of the individual. Let me explain. You and I, as individuals, have fallen far short of all that God requires. We have lied, we have cheated, we have stolen, we have lusted with our eyes, we have coveted with our hearts, we have bowed down to the idols of the world, we've dishonored the name of God, and we've placed above Him gods of our own making. We are born, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in our transgressions and sins. Not sick, not wounded, but dead. All of us, upon our arrival into this world as human beings, are condemned already. And whether we believe it to be true or not, the law of God is the standard by which we must consider our lives. And each of us, if we're honest, will recognize immediately that we have transgressed all that God has commanded. And so it's imperative that we hear and proclaim the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Not your works, not your goodness, and not your knowledge. Only Jesus. And there may be someone here this morning that is thinking, if that's true, then I am condemned already. So what must I do to be saved? Great question. The Bible as a whole from beginning to end clearly lays out the way of salvation. 
How must we be reconciled to God? Through the death of his son. How must we be justified and saved from God's wrath? We must be justified by his blood and saved from his wrath through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on his cross. How, after being reconciled to God by the death of Christ, might we finally attain complete salvation? We must be saved by his life. We must, from first to last, live by faith in the Son of God, looking to his fulfillment of God's law, his death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection from the tomb as our only ground of acceptance before the Father and to his renewed life in heaven as the one and only source of our stability and the surest pledge of our eternal joy. God made Jesus Christ to be sin, him who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when we repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness, His right standing before the Father becomes our right standing before the Father because our sin and the death of sin that dwells within us has been placed on the cross and punished in Jesus Christ for us. It's the greatest exchange in all of human history. Our sins traded for his righteousness. And you never deserved it. But if you are in Christ, you have received it. If you are a sinner, if you are an enemy of God for whom Christ Jesus has died to save, he is already at work within you to bring you to a place of conviction, to recognize the significance of sin within you. I pray you don't ignore that. And I plead with you to flee for refuge, to flee from the wrath of God. It is coming and you will not escape. Repent of your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. To be saved from the wrath of God by the work of God for your good and for the glory of God. And for those of us who are Christians, pray that God would raise up laborers into the harvest field to send them out that this great news of the gospel might be preached far and wide for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of God. Will you pray that? Will you pray to the Lord of the harvest? Will you be bold enough to ask, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Let's pray. God, raise up laborers for the harvest field. Send them far and wide that this great and glorious truth that the kingdom of God is near That Jesus Christ is a great Savior for great sinners. That He saves to the uttermost. May this be proclaimed throughout the world that the nations would be glad in Christ. Would you do that, O oh God? Would you do that very thing in our midst? I pray, God.
that you would drive your people. All of us, drive us to our knees to plead with you to do this great work and to ask, is it us? Is it one of us? Is it some of us? Is it our very families that you want to go into the harvest field? If it is, O oh God, give us that great conviction that we might go. And help us, God, in all of our successes, in striving and laboring for the sake of the kingdom of God, that we would not rejoice in those things as the primary and greatest thing to rejoice in, but that we would always remember our place. We would always remember why we are saved and how we are saved, and that we would rejoice that our names are written in heaven. And God, I pray for those this morning who hear the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who remain dead in transgressions and sins, that you would make known to them the ungodliness of their own hearts, the lawlessness of their lives, that you would help them to understand that being a good person is worthless. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. And the only way to eternal life is by repenting of sin and placing all of their hope and all of their faith and all of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, persevering on to the very end that we are ushered into eternity, raised from the dead with Jesus Christ to live forever and ever with him. Would you do that, God? Would you do that very thing for your glory this morning, that we might rejoice with all the angels in heaven to see new life in Christ? We love you, O God, and we pray that we can walk in great obedience to your word, that your smile would be upon us, and that your glory would be revealed. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.